What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hello out there in uh, rock art podcast, archaeology podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. And today we're going to be on a wild fling with Dr. Rick Chacone, who's going to talk about his intimate experiences with pre-contact traditional people, shamans, medicine men, blow dart hunters, and even head hunters. Hello out there in archaeology podcast land. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and we're in the 44th episode of the Rock Art Podcast. So uh, welcome, all listeners. And we have a remarkable and very special guest scholar to uh, grace our humble show today. And his name is Dr. Richard Chacon. He's professor of anthropology at the Winthrop University, for those who don't know where that is. It's uh, in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and he is a cultural or social anthropologist who, in fact, conducts anthropological investigations throughout the Americas. 
and in fact has uh, documented both the subsistence patterns and belief systems of the Yanomamo of Venezuela, the Yora of Peru, the Achuar of Ecuador, and even the uh, Kuna of Panama. And he's talked about the Otavalo and the Cotacachi Indians of Highland Ecuador, and even dabbled in the Haida of British Columbia. So throughout the Americas, he has had the, uh, the blessing of intimately connecting with the native people. Rick, are you there? I am here. Well, again, it's just a pleasure and an honor to have you on our show. And I guess the way we kick this off usually in the first segment is, you know, tell us a bit about yourself and how you got involved with the study of indigenous peoples, anthropology, uh, both the perspective of their uh, religion and the uh, subsistence base as well. And all in 17 minutes, of course. <laughs> well, 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 Alan, I have to, well, I have to start by thanking you for the invitation. It's an honor to be here. And uh, while you asked the question, what got me into this, basically, and boy, where do I start? I guess my earliest memory of being interested in Indians was as a child growing up in Costa Rica. I'm of Costa Rican heritage. Both my parents are born in, were born in Costa Rica. And I remember as a kid... You know, just playing around in the dirt, I would find potsherds of you know pre-Columbian artifacts, and I always used to wonder who made these things, who who made these things. And the Indians in Costa Rica, their their chiefdom level societies were pretty you know de decimated with the arrival of the Spaniards. You still have some groups that maintain fairly traditional lifestyles uh, in the border areas with Panama, but you don't have you know independent powerful groups active in Costa Rica. And so I was wondering, I was always wondering, where did these people go and who are they? And, and it used to pain me that I couldn't speak to the makers of these potsherds. And then eventually as an undergrad, I, I came across, you know, intro to cultural anthropology classes. And I was exposed to Napoleon Shagnon's films on the Yanomamo. And it blew me away that, no, you still have Indians living fairly traditionally in remote parts of the Americas. And so, because I used to say to myself, gosh, I was born too late, you know, <laughs> I was born too late. But no, I wasn't born too late. You still had native groups in remote areas of the world, i.e. the Amazon, that were living fairly traditionally. And so ever, it started as a child when I would find potsherds, and I just, I just never grew up, so to speak. <laughs> so you, you remained uh, obsessed with your childish obsessions oh listen i during spring break <laughs> during spring break you know my friends would go to uh you know to party i would go to anthropology libraries wow and comb through black and white uh, photos taken by people like harrington and crowbar you know big california indian people sure, and I this sure. the this is a, a a a very powerful story at least for me i remember one spring break i was in a museum which is in Arroyo Seco area of, of Pasadena. I think it's closed down mm -hmm. in California Indian Museum. And mm -hmm. there was a black and white photo, and the caption read something along the lines of four Kahuilla Indian boys practicing with their bows and arrows in what is today Palm Springs, California. And the photo was taken, say, early 1900s, probably by somebody like a Harrington or somebody. But it was early 1900s in what is today Palm Springs, California, four Kahuilla Indian boys. And again, that, that feeling hit me. Gosh, I was born too late. Because if you go to Palm Springs now, you're not going to find Kahuilla Indians playing with bows and arrows. You find Indian casinos, but you're not going to find Kahuilla Indians 
with bows and arrows. And I used to say, oh my gosh, I was just born too late. But when I first got to the Amazon, and my, the first group that I worked with was the Yora, and I, as soon as I arrived, I had my camera ready, and one of the first images I see are four Indian uh, boys practicing with their bows and arrows, and I got a shot of that. And that picture sits in my office right now, so I was not born too late. I was born right at the right time. So your particular niche as an anthropologist is in what particular areas? How, how did you, uh, you know, come by that particular specialization? Well, I was trained in optimal foraging theory, a very quantitative approach, so selectional thinking, uh, powered or, or informed by what's known as selectional thinking. Optimal foraging theory is part of human behavioral ecology, so it's very quantitative and it's, it's very scientific, quote-unquote. But I realized that if I'm going to understand behavior, the behavior that I'm seeing in the Amazon, I have to take beliefs into account. I have to. Now, I'm not saying optimal foraging theory is not enough, but it, it certainly is a good starting point. But if you want a, a broader picture, you have to include beliefs. And, and I found out the following. You know, as I said, my, my approach is very quantitative. I, I time when the Indians go out to hunt, when, when they leave for hunting, when they come back. So I have the exact amount of hours hunting. And then I weigh everything so I can I can calculate a kilograms per hunting hour, all very scientific. And of course, optimum foraging theory makes predictions about prey choice, that native peoples will always go for higher ranked prey items over lower ranked prey items. And the ranking is done in terms of energy efficiency, all very scientific, all very fine. Until one day, <laughs> we were coming back from a hunt, a blowgun hunt, and with my dear friend Saka, good blowgun hunting friend of mine, and there was this uh, woolly monkey. He was so low on the canopy that even I could have hit it with a blowgun. And I, I'm a klutz in the jungle, I'll have you know. And he looked at this perfectly good and edible woolly monkey, and he said, we are, let's go. I'm like, what? what? And then when he got back to the village, I asked him, well, well pray tell, why did you pass on that monkey? And he says, well, didn't you, don't you know the, the state that my wife is in? And I go, what do you mean? What, do you, what does that have to do with you passing up a perfectly viable, high-ranked prey item? I didn't say it in those, those terms. But right. why, why did you pass up on this monkey, which is perfectly edible? And, and I know your family's hungry. And, he, and then he explained, well, you see, my wife is about to give birth. And if I were to kill that monkey, my wife's child would be stillborn. What? How is that the case? Well, you, it, the, the child would be born with the umbilical cord wrapped around its neck. Now, this made perfect sense to me only because I had been with them on many hunts and I know how they transport monkeys back from the forest. These folks don't have backpacks. They don't have uh, any kind of carrying cases. When they kill an animal, especially a monkey, they tie, they tie it into a, a compact ball. They take all the arms, the legs, the tail, and they wrap it very, very tightly around its neck so that you have this compact ball. So that's how you transport a hunted monkey. So if they were to transport a, a, kill, a, a, a harvested monkey from the forest, the monkey's neck is all tied up with you know, arms and legs. It's all very constrict, constricted. And so they believe the same thing will happen to their, ch to their child if their wives are about to give birth. That 
was not factored into any kind of optimal foraging <laughs> theory. Now, does that mean I trash optimal foraging theory? No. I still think optimal foraging theory is, is the best predictor for prey choice, but it's not 100%. There are very important tweaks that need to be made to it. Uh, it makes Exceptions. for a very interesting research. So the, the, the point of this long story is to understand hunting, yes, uh, scientific theories are very important, but you have to understand beliefs. They impact people greatly. So it sounds like that there's a particular... A religious precept or a cosmological element, which relates to homeopathic medicine, oh. or, or or magic. Excuse me, not medicine, but magic. Am I correct or no? Is beliefs. it something about beliefs? Yeah, that the, the yeah. particular, the particular manner in which that animal is constricted has a relation to the reproductive symbolism and reproductive health of a. Uh, woman. Yeah, yeah. It it it's interesting that when and I, again I stumbled upon these beliefs. I didn't go looking for these beliefs because right, I'm a subsistence kind of guy. Yeah. It turns out that when a woman is about to give birth, the husband's activities are critical to her giving a, a healthy, uh, having a healthy birth. There's all kinds of foods that husbands have to uh, abstain from, all kinds of activities that they have to abstain from. There's all kinds of stuff. Otherwise, they could hurt the uh, the mother-to-be. And and a lot of it is sympathetic magic, kind of like uh, you know what I just described. But beliefs, yeah, belief systems, everything. exactly. I learned that. I learned very quickly. For example, I would always try to schedule things the day before because, it, for example, if I go on a fishing trip, the gear that I take is very different than the gear that I take when I go on a hunting trip. And I have to know ahead of time because they, the men will not wait for me. They have families to feed, so they take off at first light. And if I'm not there, boom, they're gone. So the the night before, I would ask somebody, like say a friend named Kaisar, Kaisar, what are you doing tomorrow? And he would say, I'm going hunting. Oh, can I go with you? Sure. So I would show up to his hut early with my hunting gear. And he said, I said no, let's go fishing. Why? I dreamt, <laughs> I dreamt poorly. What do you mean you dreamt? Ah. It turns out there are all of these dreams which serve as portents, and you don't dismiss these dreams. And so now there's yet another layer that I have to add on if I want to understand hunting data, hunting behavior, dreams. So it makes for a very interesting research, but you cannot simply, uh, if you really want a true and holistic understanding of native hunting practices, if you only focus on calorics and energy, as important as those things are, you're going to miss a lot. And I learned that. <laughs> Boy, I learned that. But it makes it all the more interesting. So so with hunting, and that's something, of course, near and dear to my heart, vis-a-vis the, the studies of Aboriginal foragers in California and the Great Basin mm-hmm. in the Far West, there seems to be a great interest in hunting and the relationship to symbolism or religious metaphor or even shamanism did you find that in your uh, actual anthropological uh, field work yes yes uh, i took meticulous notes on what they hunted and the harvest rates and what they were killing and you know and so i knew that certain species were frequently harvested by the blowgun hunters and by the way these were subsistence hunters they were not involved 
in the uh, bush meat trade at all. Everything was for okay. internal consumption. It's very rare to be able to do that in this day and age, but sure. I was very fortunate. And so I knew the species that were taken frequently, but I also knew some species, neotropical species, were not taken at all during the whole course of my study. And I was there throughout the entire, throughout most of the 1990s. Things like tapers were never harvested. Things like spider monkeys were never harvested. Things like white-lipped peccaries never harvested. We would see signs of these animals, but only at about 12 kilometers away from the village. These are these are central place foragers. So at about 12 kilometers away from the village, you'd start to see signs of, of white-lipped peccaries, spider monkeys, and tapir. But they were never harvested. And of course, that's a sign of depletion. When I asked the men, why is it that during the whole time I've been here, I've never seen you guys harvest those species, they did not say, well, that's due to overhunting. They blamed it on shamans, malevolent sorcerers who wish to do the community harm. Traditionally, in the Amazon, and I stumbled across this behavior, disappearance mm -hmm. of game species is never attributed, traditionally, not attributed to overhunting. It's attributed to sorcery or some violation of game taboos that has angered what's known as the supernatural gamekeeper of that species. So these, these um, really, really, and, and, uh, and as you know, I'm writing a whole book on, on this. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this has great significance to our understanding of indigenous hunting practices. they the symbolism that is incorporated in their art and rock art and also in their cosmology and the relationship of shamanism uh, to uh, the, the religious metaphors that really, uh, I guess, tie the culture together and make a group a uh, significant entity in terms of identifying those values that they hold most dear. Yeah. And I yeah, think yeah. with that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut it short and we'll go to the second segment. And I think in that segment, we'll probe more deeply into those, those basic cultural heritage values, those those basic elements that kind of tie a, tie a group together. And I think you might have a bit to say about that, doctor. <laughs> so meet you on the flip-flop. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code rockart everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot 
for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So welcome back to uh, episode 44. We uh, are blessed to be speaking with Dr. Rick Chacon. Uh, on, his, on the nature of his involvement with anthropological studies of indigenous people in the Americas. And before the break, this is the second segment, we were delving in a bit uh, more deeply on sort of the, the basic philosophical elements, the religious views and how that interweaves with subsistence practices and a bit about uh, its relationship to even shamanism. So Rick, I, I'm going to ask you a few questions about that. What role does a shaman uh, have in, in hunting activities and in the um, religious basis or basically the cosmological basis of a society? How big was those societies you were working with? Well, the Achuar, uh, where I did my dissertation, are also known as the Shiviar. They straddle both the Peru and Ecuadorian border, and it's although it's hard to get an estimate. Uh, the published figures are there are about five thousand or so. The groups that I and they live in villages of my village was about forty to fifty-eight people. It fluctuated, and each so village rather is small. Uh, you know, run by its own headman. Yeah, okay. very very small, and that means you get to know people really well. Sure. And every, almost every village has its own headman. Okay. And headmen are their first re, are the first respondents. You know, when somebody gets sick, that's where you go for the headman, and the headman is is your everything. He's your your nine one one, so to speak. And as we were talking about in the previous segment, when there's a shortage of game, bad headmen, sorcerers, are are to blame. And so you asked about the, the relationship between headmen and wildlife. This is how it was explained to me by my closest friend in the village, a man named Kaisar. Kaisar said to me, and he used an analogy that he knew I would understand. Kaisar is really, really bright. He said, wildlife for shamans is like cattle for white men. A white man can move cattle from one pasture to another at will, can he not? Yes. So it is with a sorcerer, a shaman, who wishes to do a community harm. By way of magical chance, a shaman can cause all the wildlife of an area or selected forms of wildlife from an area, and he can move them away from a community that he wishes to do harm to. And it was explained to me further that he takes the, the wildlife that he's hiding from the targeted population, and he hides them in a in a hole underground. And there the animals are fed by the hoodie hoodie spirits, which is an, another type of supernatural being. And But, but this is done uh, to hurt communities. And so that's how they explain shortages of tapers, shortages of woolly monk, uh, spider monkeys, and shortages of white-lipped peccaries. It has nothing to do with hunting for traditional Amazonian people. So would the, sh would the shamans or headmen be involved with these hunts? Would they telepathically or magically or spiritually uh, direct them to certain areas? Am I wrong? Well, n nobody would ever volunteer openly to be engaged in this activities because they'd be targeted to be killed because you're really hurting a community. But this is something that 
our village accuses other villages of doing that. Shamans from another community are doing it to our village. Nobody, nobody would ever do this in a public forum because they'd be targeted for killing. Yes, understood. Yeah. But what, what I'm but, asking, uh, so, I'm, what I'm asking, Rick, is is what is the role of of this headman shaman in terms of the choreography, the orchestration of a hunt? Is there such a role? Oh, okay. I see what you mean. Yeah. Now, first of all, shamans uh, may not be headmen, so you, you should okay. not conflate the two. Sometimes they might, sometimes they may not. In in, in my village, the shaman was a wonderful man named Tsurembo, a good friend of mine. He was not the political leader. That was a man named Chuhi who had killed in battle, and he's a dear friend of mine. So, but those are two different people. Uh, but in among the Achuar, shamans are not involved in orchestrating any kind of supernatural blessings on any activity. This is very different from other groups like the Tucano mm-hmm. of Colombia, where you, if you and I are Tucano hunters mm-hmm. and we want to bag an animal, then we have to go to a, a, a local shaman and submit our request. And then the shaman will go to an area that has rock art on it. This is one of the few examples, one of the few cases where we know very clearly a clear ethnographic record of what the rock art is associated was associated with is associated with uh, the, uh, certain rock art panels are where the supernatural gamekeeper lives for the Tucano, and uh, there the shaman would offer our petitions with along with various chants, and then he would uh, receive sort of a, a, a instructions from the supernatural gamekeeper of how many animals we could take the types and, and, and the bag limit so to speak. So, but but that does not happen among the Achuari. Uh, every man is sort of on his own, but Amasan is watching him. Amasan is the supernatural gamekeeper of the Achuari. He sees everything, and uh, so there's all kinds of rules that Amasan, the supernatural gamekeeper, who I am told is an, is an anthropomorphic being who roams the forest with a giant blowgun, and this is how it would explain to me. This is how the supernatural gamekeeper uh, provides food for the Atuar. Uh, and again, the supernatural gamekeeper's name is Amasan. When Amasan sees, if, if it, it was explained to me as, as follows, when he sees how we suffer, we being subsistence hunters, suffering, hunting is hard work. When he sees how we suffer in the forest, he takes pity on us. He loves us. Those are their words. He takes pity on us. He loves us. And what he does then, with his supernatural blowgun, he will shoot an animal, and uh, and it, it is said Amasan never misses. So he shoots an animal with his supernatural blowgun, and that will allow the hunter that Amasan feels pity for to, to uh, bag an animal. Now, as long as the hunter follows the following, he will be successful at hunting. Hunters need to only take. Uh, the animals that are that they need, they they cannot, they should not kill more than what is necessary, and they should always be respectful of game. What do I mean by that? There's a proper way of butchering animals. Uh, you should not let let dogs lick the blood of the animal that you are butchering. There's all kinds of uh, butchering techniques that you should use that show the proper respect. So if you only take what you need and show the animal respect, the bagged animal respect by following the proper butchering procedures, then Amasan will take pity on you and provide you with, with game. Are there, are there any shrines or any sort of physical oh, that, embodiments? That, Please. That, 
That's a wonderful question. Among the Achuar, no, but among the Lake Atitlan Maya, the answer is a resounding yes. There are shrines because you have the same concept among the Lake Atitlan Maya. I'm talking modern day Maya uh, right. subsistence hunters, where kind of like the Tucano, if we're Lake Atitlan Maya hunters and we want to bag, say, deer, you can't just go out and kill a deer. You have to get permission from the dueño, the owner of deer, the supernatural owner of deer and you submit the request to a local shaman the shaman there has a dream and then will tell you what quota the bag limit that that you have but you have to prove to the supernatural gamekeeper that you've stayed within your limits so among the lake atitlan maya they curate the bones they'll they'll kill a deer and they hang on to the deer, deer bones they clean off the deer bones and they bring the deer bones to the shrine where the supernatural gamekeeper lives. And so those bones have life or they have some sort of energetic uh, elements to them? Yes, it's very common, very, very common that the, the bones, uh, that wildlife will regenerate from the bones. So it's, it's, it's critical that the bones are saved too as proof that you stayed within your bag limits. You know, if you, if, if you only got permission to kill three deer, then <laughs> there's a problem if you show up with a, bones for four deer <laughs> so uh, so it's a way that you prove to the supernatural gamekeeper that you you have stayed within your limits within the indigenous societies you've studied do they have a an understanding or a belief in that that any of these animals are in essence immortal and that they uh, are regenerated uh, regularly and and don't truly die it, that's, that belief is exceedingly common in the boreal forest groups that uh, okay. these animals are constantly reincarnated. In other words, as long as the bones are returned, say salmon bones are returned to the, sure. to the lake or, or in some cases burned, depending on the group, that the yeah. bones will naturally regenerate. And so the, there's, there's no way traditionally to cause a species to become extinct because the bones, as long as you dispose of the dispose of the bones properly, they will automatically regenerate. So it doesn't matter if you kill 10 beaver or a thousand beaver, as long as the bones are properly disposed of, the belief is well, doesn't they that, will... Doesn't that go against sort of the um, conventional belief of sort of a conservation ethic for indigenous well, people? Well, yeah, it kinda, it's kind of problematic in that it's, you know, population, wildlife biology does not work that way. And, and this is something that, that I, again, I, I stumbled across in the, in the Amazon is that for the traditional Achuar, only traditional Achuar, they do not believe that hunting has an effect on wildlife populations. I'll say that again. They do not believe that hunting has any effect whatsoever on wildlife populations. What determines wildlife scarcity, again, is, is there a sorcerer out there who's hiding wildlife? And if you as a hunter are not bagging animals, it's because you must have violated some taboo. Some dog may have licked the blood from an animal you were butchering or, you know, you did something wrong. So this, of course, has, has implications for our understanding of archaeology and prehistory and rock art and other things. Because as we see the images and the features, the archaeological features that we believe could be associated with hunting or or the, uh, the development of sort of game traps and gaming circumstances, then we can see conceptually how that might have been 
a metaphor for uh, some of these belief systems that are embedded in this nested and layered cosmology. Am I correct? Uh, Alan, you you just hit upon something that's really important, and I'm glad I'm speaking to archaeology types <laughs> out there. Uh, is that, uh, for example, remember how he said there's proper ways of butchering animals and all this that you have to follow, that you or your or your wife, you know, the women provide most of the cooking and the butchering of these, these games. So your wife has to be on board as to how to process game properly or, or you're out of luck as a hunter. It was explained to me that animals that reside in trees, things like monkeys and birds, those bones are never to be given to dogs to, to chew on. That's horrible. You cannot do that. So what do you do with those bones? The proper way of disposing them, you throw them in a river. That will mm. make Amasan happy. Well, if you're going through, you're an archaeologist, uh, you know, <laughs> going through a trash bin, a food bin in, in the Amazon, you're not in, in an area that has those kinds of beliefs. Guess what? You're not going to find bones of all kinds of species, like you know, certain types of monkeys and certain types of birds. And the mistake would be to think, well, those species were not consumed. No, no, no. It's right. just that they had simple bone disposal <laughs> practices. Do you see the importance of I understanding do, these I beliefs? Do. That's this fascinating. Is it really is. It's huge. This is huge. Absolutely And, and huge. I, owe, I, I owe my – so this is why – this shows you the value of these interdisciplinary approaches because we can learn from each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. What other little twists of fate and insights and wisdom might you have – for the uh, archaeologists and those people that are maybe trying to understand symbolism and oh. cosmology and shamanism and, and how those different levels of, of understanding might work in Native societies from your firsthand experience, Doctor. Oh, well, there's, it just, it just, it's just everything. Everything, it, it affects everything. For example, there was this, you know, moving one's home is huge amounts of work. I mean, because you can't get a U-Haul and move stuff. You have to physically transport everything. And this one man set up a new hut, and, and that means a new garden and everything just across the river. So as far as amount of meters, it's not a big deal. But he has to take all of his personal belongings and get them, ferry them across the river, and they just have one dugout canoe. And then you have to build the, the darn hut, and that takes huge amounts of work, huge amounts of work. And he was there for about a week, and then he reported being spooked by some spirit. That something scared him, and he said it was like this big. He reported hearing or seeing some really scary-looking being, and boom! Then he mm -hmm. moved back to the other side. So all that hard work that went into wow. making that hut, he, he was spooked. Now. That reminds me of another incident, uh, and that was among the Achuar. So basically, house relocation due to spiritual activities or perceived spiritual activities, malevolent spiritual activities. Yes. One time I was with the uh, Yora of Peru. This is a recently contacted group back then. They're just I was just outside of Manu National Park, just outside of Manu National Park, the headwaters of the Sapawa River, extremely isolated part of the world. We were bow and arrow fishing. I was with the headman. We were bow and arrow fishing. And it was very productive. Even I was getting fish. 
and I am a big klutz <laughs> in the jungle. Uh-huh, oh, listen, uh-huh. when the Indians when the Indians want to be entertained, they watch me try to blow gun hunt. You know, I provide the entertainment. <laughs> oh, fantastic! Gosh, it's, it's, fantastic! It's, 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 uh, it's uh, I provide the comedy on those things. Right. So right. even I was bagging uh, fish, and they used these trident three tip uh, arrows, uh-huh. and things were going great. We were just killing it, and the shaman said, "Ivianch." Ivianch, which means, excuse me, the, the head man, whose name is Inima, reported uh, that spirits were active. And he got scared and he said, we got to go. So we gave up a particularly productive fishing spot. Oh, the word he used was waka. Ivianch means spirit in Atua. My apologies. Uh, yeah. He said waka, uh, which is the term they use. It's sort of a catch-all term among the Yora, even though that term is Quechua, but it's Fodder for a whole other story. Bad mojo. Which means, which, uh, which is being spirit, the malevolent spirit. Yeah. Let's get out of here. So it killed me because I thought this is a very productive environment. I mean, optimal foraging theory says you don't move from this until the environment, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ceases to be productive. Well, right. again, it doesn't take into into account spirit activity or perceived malevolent spirit activity. So needless needless to say, it is the spiritual the supernatural the and some would some would say the religious or cosmological metaphor that trumps some of the rational decision making that would appear to be more logical to sort of the western construct well this is what i would say I, and again if you look at and again i'm an, i'm a human behavioral ecologist so my bias is towards selectional thinking i think sure. optimal origin theory provides the best predictor for Prey choice, absolutely. But there are these nagging beliefs that throw monkey wrenches into this situation, like the couple Got that it. I just shared with you. Now, exactly. Well, I th- well, I think we're going to cut this sh- cut this short. We've got one more uh, segment to go, and in that segment, I want you to focus on, I would say, some of the most uh, interesting discoveries or epiphanies and uh, uh, elements from your career that you think would be of value to someone studying uh, the symbolism and the uh, religious metaphors that might be embodied in the uh, study of rock art. And I'll catch you on the flip-flop, gang. Bye-bye. Okay, sounds good. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, hello out there in podcast land. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel-Gold with our guest scholar, Professor Dr. Richard Chacon. 
And this has been just a wild ride. He's really given us an intimate insight, first person <laughs> observation on indigenous uh, people living in pre-contact traditional life ways and the way in which those uh, behaviors and those concepts and belief systems are translated into uh, activity in the hunting realm and also its relationship to shamanism and, and headmanship and just dealing with the, um, the basics of it all. So, Rick, I'm going to challenge you in this last segment. We've got about 15 or 20 minutes to do this to give us the takeaways from your long career as to what you feel are the most important insights and discoveries from an indigenous Native American traditional perspective. Well, boy, it's hard to do, but what I'll do is, with your permission, I'll focus on my Amazonian fieldwork. Uh, I've also done fieldwork uh, in the Andes, and I'd be happy <laughs> to talk about that if I, if I get invited back. But as, as far as as far as the Amazon goes, by far, without question, the most meaningful episode for me, and I, and I was there throughout for almost a decade, was when I was invited to participate in an Arutam quest. Arutam is a supernatural force that the Achuar believe uh, one must obtain in order to have a long and healthy life. So it's a rite of passage. One must partake, partake, participate in a rite of passage to obtain Arutam. And I was allowed to to accompany and initiate a dear friend of mine named Beas. And so I went on an Arutam quest, a rite of passage with him, and we survived. But it, for me, it was an apex, the, the an absolute crescendo of fieldwork experience because the Achuar are being targeted by fundamentalist uh, Christian missionaries, uh, American fundamentalist Christian missionaries who are very hostile to Native beliefs. So... These sorts of things are not talked about in mixed company because the Indians fear of the, the missionaries uh, becoming angry with them. So the fact that they allowed me, not just that they talked to me about it, but they allowed me to participate in it was a great adventure, uh, a, a great honor, I should say, and a great adventure. Now, let me give you some background uh, uh, on the Arutam quest. The first person to document the Arutam quest, well, I should say mm. the first ethnographer was Michael Harner, who in the 1950s and the 1960s did fieldwork among the Shuar, also known as the Hivaru. The Shuar are culturally very similar to the Achuar. They speak mutually intelligible dialects. They both were traditionally blowgun hunters. So there's a lot of similarities. And he documented the uh, Arutam quest and so it's a classic. It's an absolute classic in the ethnographic literature of the Amazon. So when I had a chance to participate in this Arutam quest, I felt sure. like I was walking in the footsteps of Michael Harner. And uh, when I was in the field, I, you know, Michael Harner was always in my mind because I knew exactly what he had written. And I was in the field and I said, oh, yes, 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 Michael Harner wrote about this. And, and so I confirmed many, many of the uh, things that Harner reported. Now, how do you get Aruta? Well, it's it's the following. You, plus, you put yourself, if you're an initiate who wants Aruta, this force that gives you invincibility in battle, and there's many other benefits, long life, many women, economic prosperity, many children, etc. You place yourself under the tutelage of somebody with Aruta, a great warrior. And I mentioned him before. His name is Chuhi. He's killed in battle. He's, he's the high status mm -hmm. man of the village that I did field work in. 
So he's somebody that has a rutam, and so Beas and I placed ourselves under the tutelage, under the guidance of, of Chuhi. And the way you get a rutam is that you move far away from the village, about a three-day walk, and you build a small little shelter. Now, this shelter is very different from regular hunting shelters. It's called an umbak. It's a very, very special shelter. And then you you clear a path heading out of both directions from the shelter, about 50 meters each way. And you will live in these shelters. I say shelter is hmm. plural because each night you make a new shelter. And you do this for at least three days. And during the time, there's no food, oh no water for three days. Do you know how oh. absolutely exhausting that is? That's the whole point. You want to bring these initiates to the breaking point. You really want to push them to their limits with all these all these physical exertion activities because it, it places, initiates, uh, they're very susceptible to entering an altered state because uh, that's what you want. You want them to have either a vision or a, a, a vivid dream because at night when you're asleep, and by the way, there's no fires are allowed. No campfires. And this is dangerous sure. because the jaguars can come and pick you off. So it's not without its danger. So, But at night, the whole goal is to have a dream. And the way you get Arutam is via a dream. Uh, an ancestor, somebody who had Arutam in their in their life, will come to you. And I've, I've collected many of these dreams, and they all follow the same format. Number one, the ancestor appears, and he announces themselves by name. I am Chuhi Arkan, I am uh, Sauki, I am uh, Wakyach, whatever. And either they'll, then they'll show you their weapon. They will always be brandishing a weapon. And and they're always doing what's called an Aukmatin, a chant, a chant, which is, uh, I'll, I'll act out the chant, which means I come, I come, I come. And then they'll announce their name, as I said, I'm Wakyach or I am Chuhi Arkan. And then they'll show you their weapon. And the weapon can be either a spear or a shotgun, but the tip will always be bloody, always be bloody. And then they'll point to some feature on, on their bodies, or some feature, either a lot of gray hairs, or they'll point to a hill with lots of kids, or they'll point to a net bag <laughs> with lots of human heads. Mm-hmm. There was headhunting in this area. And then after they point to some feature, depending on the feature they point to, that's the arutam you'll get. For example, if he points to his head with hair that's, lot, that's oh, very gray, okay. that means you'll live a long life. You'll live long enough to develop gray hairs. If he points to, if, if see, he won't tell you what you're going to get, but he'll show you. And by the way, I got permission from everybody who told Fantastic. me their dreams to uh, publish this. So this is all very much on the up and up. Because you really need to be sensitive about these beliefs. You know, the, the, I don't want to burn any bridge. Anyway, if he shows you a hill fill, filled with kids, it means you're going to have a lot of kids. Or uh, my friend Talingas, who had the dream where uh, a man showed him his net bag, and these net bags mm-hmm. are used to transport small game from the forest. The net bag was not filled with game. The net bag was filled with severed human heads. And he says, these are all shamans. These are all shamans. Remember, right. shamans do communities harm. They cause disease. They hide wallets. Right, right. So, so I should say sorcerers, excuse me, sorcerers. These are the heads of sorcerers. 
And and then he said, then the man said, uh, we are high, I, I leave. And Talingas woke up, my friend who had this dream woke up and he was elated. He was just so happy because he received the highest form of Arutam, ah. the Arutam to take human heads. Now, this means that Talingas did not become a headhunter. By the way, the Achwari were usually, usually subjected to headhunting of their neighbors, the Shuar, conducted headhunting raids on them. But nevertheless, he obtained the power to headhunt. And that meant for him, well, to make a long story short, he has 12 kids and he attributes his long life and the uh, inc- inc- incredible fact that he's never he's never lost a child to to that dream. So so th- th- these are the the wonderful benefits that you achieve. So what so so the million dollar question here, doctor, what did you experience uh-huh. and what did you what was your uh aruta? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well Chuhi says in the middle of the night I was, you know, they, they, they do allow you to, to uh, in the umbak, I was, he said, I was sleeping, I was sleeping on my back. And he said that I, I had my hands up in the air, my feet up in the air, and that I looked like, uh, have you ever seen how sloths get from point A to point B? Mm-hmm. Remember they, they, they climb a tree? He said, I looked like a sloth. So I guess I got, I, there we go. I got the arutam of a sloth. <laughs> But but I can tell you I can tell the of the the arutam that people like Peas uh, got. But more important than that, the effect that it has on people, the effect that it has on people. I I can tell you, when you come back from that ep- uh, that that ordeal, because it it is one of the most toughest toughest things I've been through in my life. And Peas, my initiate, my fellow initiate said, and I quote, I've, I've suffered much in, in my life, but never anything like this. When an Amazon Indian tells you that, you know he's been through hell and back. But the treatment we received, the, the Bass and myself received when we came back to the village, was very, very different in the, in the sense that we were afforded great respect because we had survived, we had participated in the ritual, and we survived. Uh, I don't mind telling you, both of us were afraid. Both of us were afraid, uh, and I thought to myself before it started, the night before, I'll, I'll tell you this story. The night before we were to take off, Beas comes over to my hut. By the way, I, I didn't tell you my Achuar name, did I? No, you didn't. My Achuar name is Tsere, which means, I'll tell you why they called me Tsere. I used to have, I used to sport a beard. Okay. And the Achuar don't have much body hair. They detest body hair. So if they have a little bit, they'll pluck it out. So they, they find body hair detestable. So I show up and I have so much hair, I look like a monkey. So they call me Tsere, which means white-faced monkey. <laughs> I, I, I tell my students, that's Dr. White-Faced Monkey. Dr. White-Faced <laughs> Monkey. That's Dr. White-Faced Monkey to you all, I tell my students. <laughs> anyway. Love so, it. So, 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 Bass comes to my hut and he says, Tsere, this is the night before we take off on the Urutan quest. He says, Tsere, I'm scared. I'm scared. And I, I felt so I felt so much better when he said that because I was scared also. I thought, what have I gotten myself into? Right. No food, no water for three days. three days. Do you know how dehydrated it gets? It, 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 it's so easy to get like that just, just in one day. And I'm thinking, was this wise? And what if I get sick? I can't get air evacuated. There's, there's, there's no 
there's no roads, there's no electricity, there's nothing. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so he says, Tere, I'm scared. And I go, so am I, but, and, and we, we, something happened very magical that night. I said to him, and I meant this, I said, Beas, I promise you, if you faint in the jungle, I don't care where it is, I will drag you back to the village. I will not let you die in the forest. I promise you, I will, I will drag you back to the village. And, I, and he said, Tere, I'll do the same. And we shook on it. And there was a moment of solidarity there. And that changed everything because I knew I, he had my back and I had his. And we survived. And I got to tell you, I trust Beas now more than I trust many of my blood relatives. Because yeah. it's like surviving boot camp, you know. I've never it been is. in the military, but I hear boot camp is pretty, pretty nasty. Well, we kind of went through a, a three-day boot camp. We went through hell and back. But we had each other's back, and I knew something more than if a, I heard a myself. Boot camp. Yeah, you went through a supernatural experience, one that's so dramatic and such a benchmark, almost transformational. Because this is akin to, as as we call it, the vision quest experiences of native people throughout the world, actually. But it, there, there was this very famous warrior named Sauki who died before I, I I arrived, but he was very famous. Uh, he had a rutam. He had nine wives, was about to take his 10th, killed in battle. This guy was the uber warrior. Right. But I never got a chance to meet him. And but obviously a, a band of, of great traditional uh, knowledge and all that. But it used to pay me, oh, if I'd gotten here a few years earlier, I would have been able to meet him and all this sort of stuff. Anyway, on one of the nights, well, I forgot to mention this, Chuhi, who's our guide, you don't just go out there and, and wait for Arutam to come. You have to summon the 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 ancient ones by way of various chants. Mm-hmm. And Chuhi knows the chant. And Chuhi on the first night says, now listen, Tsere, I'm going to call the ancestors using a chant that Sauki taught me. Wow. When he said that, that was very powerful because this is as close as I'm going to get to, to, to Sauki. It was one of the most magical moments in my life, that I got to hear the voice of of Sauki, albeit indirectly through Chuhi, but I felt very close to Sauki at that time. But it was so magical for me because, like, I so wanted to meet this guy, but this is as close to, that I can get to him. But you here, magically magical, and supernaturally yeah. connected with yeah. him at yeah. a very, very much, very, much very okay. ethereal and very guttural way. Yeah, it was magical, and coming from somebody like Chuhi, who I admire greatly. Uh, it was one of the most precious and magical moments in my anthropological career. And Fantastic. the the, uh, the the prayer is very, very poetic. And, and I, I won't recite it word by word, but it's basically, it's, it's along the following, you know, have pity on me, see how I suffer. Here I am, I'm here right in front of you. Please let me live, let me live. And I'm here as clear as the Einsoma tree. There's a type of tree in the Amazon forest that sticks out like a sore thumb. It's this bright, bright orange tree. I mean, everything is green. All of a sudden, there's this orange tree. It seems to be on fire. <laughs> so it's pretty hard to uh-huh. miss. So they're using uh-huh. all these beautiful metaphors. I'm sitting here like an Einsoma tree. And, yeah. and you know, help me live. Let me live. And so it's sincere, sincere prayers for protection and for long life. Yeah. And Wonderful. here we are alive. <laughs> but most importantly, the, the respect that you get from the community for part, yeah, but the, and word of this traveled to other villages that uh, 
uh, Tzede had been on an Urutam quest with Peas and that we both survived. <laughs> well, that's that's a magical way to end this discussion. And because we've, we've just touched the very, very highest points and some of the most uh, interesting elements of your experiences, I will certainly want to uh, have you return at some point in the future? Oh, you're very kind. About, you're very kind. Talk about sure, some love- of the some of the other nuances of of this discussion. But this has been a I, magical, I, magical hour, and I thank you so much. It's been an honor for me, Alan. And uh, anytime you want me back, you just say uh, say when, and I'm here. Pleasure. Well, that's it for this this week. Doctor G sh- signing out. Uh, have a good week, and see you on the flip flop. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rockart. Thanks for listening, and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Bro.